and welcome to the Ed Church On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. In higher ed, people seem to look to a few elite schools for new ideas. That might be changing, though. These days, innovation seems just as likely to come from a state school or a small liberal arts college or even some upstart from outside the traditional system. We now see innovations that are coming from the grassroots and they're emerging from other places. It's not all sort of the president of Harvard has an initiative that then trickles down to everyone else. That's the argument made by today's podcast guest, Bernard Bull. He's vice provost for curriculum and academic innovation at Concordia University, Wisconsin. And he's also a blogger and runs a podcast of his own called Moonshot EDU. He's optimistic about what he sees as a greater diversity of models these days and teaching practices at colleges and universities. But he's also concerned about other pressures that he's seeing in ed tech that are pushing things towards standardization, especially as colleges experiment with big data and algorithms. I recently sat down with Bull after his keynote at the Educause Learning Initiative's annual conference in New Orleans. We talked about what he sees as the most important edtech trends coming and why it's still important to read tech critics. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. All right, I'm here today with Bernard Bull, Vice Provost for Curriculum and Academic Innovation at Concordia University, Wisconsin. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You you just gave a talk here. We're at the ELI conference. And it seems like one of the, um, you, you had a lot of interesting metaphors, but one of the things that I was struck by was that um, one of the things you talk about is some outsider kind of, you, you compared it to outsider art in the art world, but outsider education of people trying new things in higher ed. Yeah. Um, are, are you seeing, I, I guess, say, say more about that, because a lot of people within higher ed may not be aware of that, or is there really, is, I mean, sure, there's maybe one or two kind of examples, but do you think there's a real kind of growing outsider higher ed movement or outsider ed movement? There's definitely an outsider learning movement, right? Um, so if we look at, go back to the 60s and 70s, and you see all these really fascinating conversations and lots of thought, there are lots of thought experiments about what could be in education. That's where we have the open classroom concepts and the K-12 and uh, lots of conversation around self-directed learning, all these fascinating ideas, but they were ahead of their time. These were ideas that, that people were imagining a future context where this could happen, but most of the early implementations just didn't take. They didn't work. But then you jump ahead to the 90s, and we have this, this information revolution, and the Internet comes about, and right, we find ourselves now in this connected age. And that's when a lot of those 60s, 70s ideas started to get some traction. So in the 60s and 70s, people were talking about self-directed learning and peer-to-peer learning, like learners helping one another learn, and uh, you don't need the instructor, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. Um, and now we're actually in an era where that's, true, where that's possible, mm-hmm. um, and that's happening. So if I am a, a person with relatively interesting ideas and the capacity to mentor other people, I can find a following today. That's 
that's the reality of the connected and the digital age. And one of the examples I gave in my talk was like Howard Rheingold, who um, fascinating individual with um, some intriguing thoughts about sort of this modern digital context. And he, he started his own, what he calls Rheingold U. It's not really a university, but he offers his own classes. And he has people like me uh, who are high, higher ed professionals who are uh, taking classes from him to sort of reimagining, reimagine what's going to happen. And that's just one of you know hundreds or thousands of examples of of just individuals who are who can kind of create their own schools or classes or learning environments. I mean, I guess in some ways you could see it as an extension of like the whole self help movement, like the Tony Robbins and all of those, but mm-hmm. but maybe not with the the same uh, image that people attach to sort of the, the self help movement. Um, so that I think is is pretty significant. That's a massive change when we look at it over decades. You think this could actually have an impact on the way traditional higher ed works, though, or is that going to be an outsider? I think it is um, already. Um, I think when we look at higher education, though, we oftentimes look at it as an entity, as mm-hmm. if it's just one thing. And that's why I often use the phrase mm-hmm. ecosystem. Maybe it's become a little bit cliche, but I think the, the metaphor still holds up. It really is an ecosystem, and it's not as if it's this one thing that a certain person or small group of people are strategically growing, right? It's it's organic and things pop up and they die and they, they come and they grow and they interact and sometimes in positive ways and sometimes not so positive ways. And that's what's happening with this digital space. So I picture sort of the current landscape of higher ed. Picture, imagine this, this massive mural that represents all of the different things that have been happening in higher ed for an extended period of time. And then um, imagine all of a sudden on that mural, small adjustments start appearing. A small, maybe it's a, a, a landscape art, and a small garden appears in one place, and another garden, and another garden, and another garden. And all of a sudden we find that that picture, it's the same picture, but it's just covered with, with this new vegetation and this new growth. And, and that's what I see happening um, in higher ed. So we have these, this outsider innovation. It's a place to incubate ideas that's free from some of the regulatory issues and some of the restraints and the bureaucracies uh, sometimes in formal learning organizations. And people are able to iterate and experiment and they learn things and, and people are applying them in higher ed. Or um, from the learner perspective, learners are sometimes choosing those outsider learning opportunities in place of where they might have chosen um, a traditional degree or higher ed pathway. Yeah, and I guess there is this mounting frustration with uh, high cost of higher ed, and that <clears throat> probably plays into it. But isn't there also a danger that you could end up with a lot of people, students, wasting their time or, um, you know, kind of not getting something that really is going to serve them well? Yeah, I certainly am not an advocate of, of removing all regulation. I mean, regulation is not the enemy. Bad regulation is the enemy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and maybe we don't even need the enemy <laughs> metaphor. But uh, we we clearly have, from uh, you know, on the on the federal level and in some of our states, we clearly have some policies and regulations that are based upon very narrow constructs and metaphors of what education should be, like tied to the credit hour and the like. Um, and I think that's creating some unnecessary limitations. It really. Um, ties higher ed professionals' hands behind their back sometimes to innovate in some really promising ways that could that could help students. Um, so I, I definitely think that uh, like by adjusting the policies and giving higher ed organizations a little more, more freedom and flexibility while still being able to work within the um, federal financial aid system, 
um, I think that that could actually really help with the issue that you just described. Because these, these are generally, higher ed organizations are, are, are generally pretty ethically minded and they want to do right by, by the students and their stakeholders in general. I mean, certainly we can point to, to bad examples. Um, so I think that's one piece where it's an uneven playing field right now. I mean, I can't compete in the non-credit realm with others, with some of the boot camps and the like. I can partner with them and collaborate with them, but as a small liberal arts school, getting the resources to do that or having the agility to do that is pretty tough. Um, and uh, actually, in non-credit, it's a little easier. If I wanted to do it for credit, is where the regulations come in. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question. I felt like I answered the edges of it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you um, you wrote a book called "What Really Matters," and it's sort of mm-hmm. ten things you're looking at about the future of education, as I understood it. Um, and what I mean, it seems like one of the things that you mentioned in there is that you've often. Um, found yourself drawn to not just the, the kind of utopian That's right. people who writers from, you mentioned other eras, but, but even some of the dystopian ones like Neil Postman or, you know, yeah. um, people that were raising a lot of alarms about the way technology was going. That's and right. we still hear a lot of suspicion on campuses about, about, you know, especially the Silicon Valley world. How, what do you learn from some of the, the critics and how do you, how do you put that in with your what I see as sometimes an optimistic view of, of what you're right. seeing? Yeah, I cut my teeth on the media ecologists and the, some of the critics, Jacques Alua, Lewis Mumford, Neil mm-hmm. Postman, um, uh, Marshall McLuhan. And it, a lot of those people really helped me form my, my ideas and my thinking. So early on, just to kind of tell my story, sort of how, do I, how I got into this, I started in the K-12 space. And I saw in the 90s when I started, when I first became a teacher, high school teacher, middle school teacher, I saw the way in which the digital world was impacting people's uh, lives, even their most deepest seated beliefs and values about life and the world and the like. Um, and noticing how media influenced their beliefs and their ideas and how people's pursuit of truth and truth claims, how they, that was being shifted. In, what year in was influence. this? This was 93, 94. So we're finding that mm-hmm. this is at the same time that there's a push to get the internet into classrooms, right, uh, on, a, on a federal level. And and so I'm, I'm observing all of that as a social studies teacher and, and realizing, wow, I need to figure out how to prepare young people for this new world. Um, it was kind of like a media literacy, information literacy drive for me. Um, and, and helping people realize that their beliefs and their values and their view of the world is being shaped without them knowing it. And the example I, I often give was, if you can't read, if you're not literate with a book, the book can't really influence you. But if you can't read media, it still has its way with you, right? It still works on you. And, and, um, and so I remember early on, I dove back into the history of the book and sort of oral to written tradition and then so it, as the foundation for my thinking. That's where I got into media ecology and the, a lot of these critics. Along the way, I really gravitated toward this common concept Neil Postman and many others talk about, which is that when we think about technology in the, in the broadest sense, technology is just applied systematic knowledge or scientific knowledge, right? Um, that... Um, it always has affordances and limitations. There are always winners or losers. There's not such thing as a good technology or a bad technology or a neutral technology. There is a technology that's values-laden, and it will have sometimes uh, predictable and sometimes unexpected consequences. 
And that is the foundational concept with which I approach all of these topics. So do I have a utopian view? Definitely not. Do I see some affordances that I want to promote? Absolutely. Do I see some limitations with the current and dominant technologies of our system? Absolutely. So in some ways, when you hear me talk and it sounds a little bit utopian, it's actually being a critic of the current technologies, technologies like the current letter grade system, the current credit hour system, the, the current systems that sometimes uh, inhibit uh, student-centered learning. Um, the archaic policies and practices that we don't even remember where they came from, but we still hold on to them. So in some ways, I'm not really championing for a particular new innovation. I'm just trying to encourage us to recognize that our current innovations are not all that we thought they were, and maybe we need to reconsider some of them. And do you, what is your current, I mean, how, how well do you think that's working within, um, you're at an institution trying to obviously work on innovation. Yeah. And there are a lot of institutions trying that right now or putting at least, you know, saying they are setting up a center. But then again, change is slow in higher ed traditionally. How do you think it's going? Uh, In higher ed at at large, uh, I'm, I am optimistic about where we're going in higher ed in the U S system and, and internationally that I think we're creating an increasingly diverse educational ecosystem, which I think serves the learners best. If, if we work from assumption, I work from a fundamental assumption about human beings, that humans are inherently worth something. They're valuable, right? That's a constitutional concept, right, in our country. Yep. Um, and that each person has unique value and worth, and they also have um, a, a unique set of gifts, talents, and abilities, some of which may be inherent and others that will be developed because of life experiences and and emerging passions throughout life and things like that, that uh, some people aren't comfortable with the concept of calling, but uh, that I believe that there's purpose and there's meaning in life for people, whether some approach it as it's been given to you or you discovered or created for yourself, that's it, right? So if that's true, then... um, if I have a cookie cutter education system and we try to create this, we try to nationalize and, and scale everything, we just create it more uniform. And we're creating a system that's not for diverse people who are uniquely gifted with different gifts, passions, callings, interests, abilities, and all those things. So that's what I'm hopeful about is I'm seeing lots of innovations that are helping learning organizations differentiate. And and I'm a big fan of that in higher ed. We shouldn't be competing with each other. We should figure out what we can each do uh, uniquely and if not uniquely distinct of one another um, and and invest our time and energy in that so that students can look and they can make some wise choices and and have a a much broader array of of options for themselves. Hmm. And um, what do you see as the um, obstacle to that at at an institution like your own or or within traditional higher ed? I think historically in higher ed, we have modeled ourselves after a few elite schools. I mean, that's pretty hard to deny when you look at the history of higher ed in the U.S., and that is changing. Hmm. Uh, we have certainly that's still happening, and at my institution, we're, we're, we're all trained in a certain way, right? We get our terminal degrees from certain institutions, and if we didn't get them from a select group of, of institutions, our professors and advisors were from those elite institutions. So it all kind of traces back to these certain places. And, um, and we, are, we now see innovations that are coming from the grassroots, and they're emerging from other places. 
It's not all sort of the president of Harvard has an initiative that then trickles down to everyone else or MIT or Stanford or Princeton or Yale, whichever one you want to choose. Um, we're seeing state schools do incredibly innovative things, going directions that others are not doing. Um, we're, we're seeing curricular innovations that are happening and popping up based on, upon a local need or a regional need. Um, that is a distinct change. Um, and that's one that I would love to nurture. I think that's that's healthy for us. There still, though, is this very hierarchical, oh, you yeah. know, kind of status-oriented system within higher ed. Yeah, right? no question. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's you think it's it, there are examples of which maybe which schools you are you thinking of when you say this non you know non MITs and non Harvards. Um, the thing that's neat about it, I could name certain schools like Arizona States that have, have really stepped up as an innovative state school. And uh, UW-Madison has done some really incredible things. So we have some big flagship state schools. But what's most intriguing to me are the dozen schools that I can't name for you. They're the small liberal arts schools that are doing incredible things that you and I don't even know about. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're doing great things for 150 students or 300 or 500 students. Um, that's part of what intrigues me and in my work is I like to try to find those stories and tell them and amplify them so that others might be able to benefit from them, get the idea and maybe apply it somewhere else. Um, I think that's where there's, there's some real promising opportunity for innovation. I guess, what do you see as... Um, uh, the next kind of wave over the next like 10 years of, of teaching with technology in, in higher ed. If like, what, what is something that do you see that maybe is not that prevalent now, but that, that you think is coming um, uh, based on, on the things you've seen in all the interviews you've done? Yeah. The ones that, that, that come to mind immediately may not be a huge surprise to people. Um, the the data science revolution and the big data revolution is transforming healthcare. Mm-hmm. It's transforming business. It's transforming government in some countries more than others, um, and it's having uh, a significant influence in education. And I believe we're really at the beginning stages of that. Um, so that that's a that's a very big area. But what does that uh, look like for a typical student? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that this this has many possible futures. And I want to try to influence it in one direction, candidly, because I think that there is a more humane and a better way to go than, than others. Um, I let my values kind of stick out there. I'm very concerned about closed algorithmic systems. So these are systems that kind of rate and sort you, but you don't have any say on how it's rated and you don't get to see behind the, the curtain and see how it's sorted. That's, that's incredibly disconcerting, and that can be, uh, that, that amplifies the prejudices and values intended or unintended by the designers of those systems, right? Um, and, uh, um, and that is, is very concerning. And, and that's happening probably in, in a number of contexts that I haven't looked at yet. And I'm concerned that that will start to happen more and more in education as we try to do really well-meaning things, like build these algorithmic tools that predict whether students are likely to persist or not, and then we have interventions to step in and try to prevent them, or we advise students away from taking certain courses because the algorithm claims that they only have a 10% chance of getting a passing grade or getting a B or higher. Um, so, so that is is massive, and and that's going to grow. There, there is a lot of investment. We're going to see more startups in that space. Mm-hmm. We're, we already are seeing uh, quite a bit of investment. Um, and uh, when you see startups and you see investors, then there's also a desire and a push to scale. Mm-hmm. And when there's a push to scale, there's a push to standardize so that you can scale more easily, mm-hmm. um, right? And and when there's a push to standardize, 
you lose what I was talking about before, about meeting the unique needs of people sometimes. Unless we can, we can have some really wonderful experiments around open, transparent use of data and algorithms. Even giving learners the ability to kind of co-create algorithms or to manipulate the algorithm to give them answers to their questions. And, um, and that, I think, has a ton of promise, but it's definitely not something I'd say is the future. It's the, the future is data. There's no question. Big data is here to stay. It's just whether we're going to make a better world or worse world with it. Great. Well, it's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Sure. Thanks. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So whether you're on your iPhone, Apple podcast app or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever you like, please subscribe. And you can support the show by taking a minute to give us a rating or leave a review. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.